I think doors are opening for locals to tell their own stories. But at the same time, how can we go even further? How can we find a way to not need a big media outlet to legitimize your work? To make you feel like it's valuable just because you've been published in an international media outlet. How can we in Latin America or in Africa or Middle East build institutions that can also legitimize our own work? that talk about the way that we see each other. Welcome to Repicture, a podcast of the everyday projects that explores evolving conversations on the ethics and practices of visual storytelling. The Everyday Projects is a grassroots community of storytellers working to disrupt stereotypes worldwide, primarily through photography. In this week's episode, we will talk to photographers from around the world about covering their own communities. Do they consider their storytelling a duty, a burden, a privilege, or something else entirely? I'm Tasneema Sultan, a visual storyteller from and based in Saudi Arabia. I'm Nyasha Kadandara, a filmmaker based in Nairobi, Kenya, from Bulawayo, Zimbabwe. We are your hosts of Repicture. Thanks for joining us. No peace! No peace! So, back in June 2020, while watching the numerous Black Lives Matter protests erupt around the brutal murder of George Floyd, I noticed and I'm sure many of you did, a different tune from the gatekeepers of storytelling pronouncing very loudly, hire black photographers, hire black filmmakers. This is their story, this is their time. I remember even seeing a friend, white, male, also a filmmaker, offering a $12,000 camera to any black filmmaker in New York who wanted to document what was happening. And I thought, interesting. But why now? And what's the agenda behind it? And how long will it last? And for the people who are doing the work, the very difficult work of documenting such a harsh reality, how do they feel about the experience? Is it a burden? Do they feel a sense of duty? Is it an honor to be able to represent their community, even under the most difficult circumstances? Every time I do a story about the country I grew up in, Zimbabwe, or a community that I come from, I feel a deep sense of obligation to do it right. I cannot mess this up. Am I representing black people properly? Am I representing Africans properly? Am I representing black women properly or Zimbabweans? It's a lot of pressure. So I wondered, how do you accurately represent and document your own communities that may already have been largely misrepresented by other forms of media and bring them dignity all into a single frame? I was happy to see that editors could recognize that black people might actually be in the best position to document what's happening in their backyard. But heavy is the head that wears the crown. And I wanted to find out from different photographers around the world who covered very complex communities 
what it was like for them. So when I looked at some of the photos that were coming from the Black Lives Matter protests around the United States, I found Patience Alanga, daughter of Nigerian immigrants living in Minneapolis. She had been covering BLM protests since Ferguson, but was feeling burnt out and was transitioning out of photography. She was working in a homeless shelter where she was earning more money than from photography. But in 2020, this all changed. George Floyd was murdered. The day after, Patience went to the scene with her cell phone, took some pictures, shared them on Instagram, and woke up to thousands of likes and shares. She was shocked. Part of it is really difficult because I'm now in this role where news agencies are now paying attention to what I share, what I post, you know, what I like. And it almost feels like this kind of like shopping around, you know, they don't really um, make themselves known to you, but you know that they're there. And feeling like, you know, even on social media, I felt like I've had to sort of change the way that I engage or how I word things. It's frustrating. It makes me feel like I can't really be who I am because I want to also have these opportunities because I want to also live a sustainable life. It's okay. I mean, from one sister to another, I get it. It's very hard. And I think there are times you just have to say, you have to stay true to yourself. Like there's definitely like you need to pay rent, you need to pay the bills, try and make it sustainable. But I also think there's something about trying to steer yourself in an ethical way that says, I'm not going to do these things because I don't believe in them and have some hard lines Mm -hmm. um, just so you can sleep at night and you don't feel crappy about the work that you do. Yeah. And so I guess you're even getting a chance to work for more national, international media. How do you feel about this change and also how it came about? It was really sudden and I, in a lot of ways, I still feel like I haven't, I don't feel prepared. I'm still trying to figure out this world of freelancing. And it's been an incredible opportunity to work for time. I grew up with Time Magazine in my house. My dad typically, you know, had several different subscriptions to to newspapers um, and magazines. So it was kind of this moment where, you know, they received the, the edition with, with my work in it. And they're like, oh, my God. Aww. So they were really excited. Um, and that was definitely a highlight. And I'm still trying to navigate now working in an industry that I have very often critiqued. And my critiques do not end just because I've you know, begun entering into the stage of, of working in the industry. I don't fully trust that uh, this industry has really had this reckon- reckoning that um, they're supposedly having right now. I think that I will have to wait a couple years to really see the outcome of this push. But it also feels like, you know, a little bit like walking on eggshells at times because I'm so new to this and there are a set of guidelines 
and um, expectations that I have to abide to, you know, to really be seen as professional. There's a point you reach where your Instagram starts to feel almost less personal. People who may not know who you are and what you stand for personally mm-hmm. um, may start to project how they feel about you or about the subject onto you. So definitely. I was like, she has so many followers, she's not gonna to respond to my Instagram, but let me just try. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I'm just and you know, there's a point where you just panic because there's just so many messages and you and you're like, which one do I respond to? Um, how do I, you know, determine uh what resonates with me mm-hmm. and um, I'm really glad that, you know, I was able to connect with you. Me too. Um, to because it, it's just significantly more comfortable when someone that looks like you is the one that's interviewing you. And um, my ability to be more honest about things is, is infinitely more great. Patience was one of many photographers I heard of who had received a camera through someone's goodwill gesture, sparked by the protests. But speaking to Patience, she shared how receiving a camera even during this difficult moment, which may have elevated her career, came with mixed feelings. There's a lot of apprehension that I have around particularly white photographers um, giving up their gear because I, as a black woman and as someone documenting this movement who also didn't have these resources like many other people did, it felt really necessary to accept, you know, the offer to receive a new camera. And it really significantly helped me continue to do the work. However, you know, there is this layer of worrying about am I indebted to this person now and do I owe anybody anything those questions continue to loom for me it may have been a little bit easier for like one specific organization to collect cameras and then disperse them because then it would alleviate that sort of feeling of being indebted to someone for gifting me a camera which was a necessary tool for me to document this movement and this moment it's definitely been a privilege it's been a privilege to have my community trust me to share these stories it has never felt like a burden to me if anything it's felt like an honor so when i kept pondering asking myself about this question, duty, burden, or privilege. I was curious to speak to somebody who might share similar experiences with me when it comes to coming from a country that just has this large identity stuck to one moment in time or to a particular situation. I come from Zimbabwe, a country that's infamous for having a longtime political dictator. And a lot of people always ask me if I'm a billionaire or a trillionaire because of all of the hyperinflation that we experienced during my teenage years and into my early adulthood. It's funny for a lot of people, 
but it also has had grave consequences on my life, the lives of millions of people from my country. And so whenever I'm faced with that one comment, it takes everything for me not to actually go crazy and then tell them off. And I think about this is why I'm doing this job. This is why I have to do this job so that I can set the record straight, so that I can give people more of a nuanced perspective. So that maybe one day when I say I'm from Zim, they don't call me a billionaire and they don't ask me about Robert McGovern. So I went to speak to Fabiola Ferrero from Venezuela, someone who has experienced a similar economic crisis and the ramifications of it. I was born and raised in Venezuela, and now my two brothers left. One of them is in Spain, the other one is in London, and my parents left to Colombia and all of it because of Venezuela's crisis. So they're part of the diaspora. Yeah, I think Zimbabwe and Venezuela are very similar in the, the economic crisis that they've experienced. So many of us live outside. Yeah, the hyperinflation anecdotes. In the early 2000s, we experienced hyperinflation. The value of the Zimbabwean currency crashed, and ironically, we became trillionaires overnight who couldn't afford a loaf of bread. Exactly like that. So people make jokes and they take pictures with, you know, showering in cash and stuff like that. So looked from afar, it definitely, you know, gets your attention and it seems funny, but obviously the consequences of that are quite devastating for the people that have to leave it every day. According to the International Organization of Migration, approximately five million people have left Venezuela, either as refugees or as migrants because of the political and social economic instability. The crisis really hit 2015. That's exactly when I started photographing. I just want people to understand there are so many different ways to look at one specific subject. And you have pictures from the agencies, for instance, that are incredibly important and that show the reality just like, bam, and we need to have that sometimes. But sometimes you need some other views of the world and you need somebody that focuses on, in my case, emotions, but you may have somebody that's focusing on human rights or somebody that wants to focus on women and in different ways to photograph it. And I think it's better for journalism when all of those things can coexist and you can show different perspectives of what's happening. And so when people, for instance, complain about having foreign correspondents in their countries and covering their conflicts, sometimes you see people that's not prepared or they don't speak the language or, you know, or people that are there because of the, the adrenaline. But at the same time, I find incredibly helpful to have those people there looking at your own country and at your own crisis and at your own life in a different way that sometimes can open your eyes to something that you didn't see before. Over the years since you've started, how has the work that you've been doing in photographing your country changed? The reasons why you start photographing may not be the same reasons why you keep on doing it over time. And I started because I was curious about what was happening in the country. I wanted to understand it. And I found this study that a Venezuelan psychologist was making that was called the emotional map of Venezuelans. The three main emotions that people mentioned were sadness, anger, and fear. 
Those were their main emotions at the time. So essentially you had a nation that was going through sort of a collective depression, if you may call it that way. Um, and I realized how that was also affecting me personally. I worked on it. I made this tiny, very personal poetry photograph with photographs, photo book, and decided that I wanted to focus on that, on the emotions, on the mental state that a crisis in a hostile environment can make you feel when you're exposed to it for a long period of time. And that switched my work because instead of working just in a photojournalistic approach, I was thinking more of documentary and how to build a narrative that could create an atmosphere of emotions instead of just focusing on the facts. I think it's privilege, a burden, and a, and a duty all at once. Um, a privilege, obviously, because you get to understand a little bit better what's happening, and you don't just read about it on Twitter. You are actually witnessing um, the painful reality of people beyond your own circle that sometimes, again, it's very privileged. Um, the burden, because it's it can get really heavy sometimes. Sometimes you come home feeling guilty that you just photographed somebody and were not able to get them out of the situation they're in when that's not your job. But even it doesn't matter. You're, you still feel like you really want those people to to be in a better position and you don't have the power to change it. And sometimes that can be very heavy. And I try to stay aware of how privileged I am and I don't let myself forget that that when I feel heavy I also remember that I have food in my fridge and that's enough to be thankful to understand that my heaviness can be can become lighter over time and that part that duty part I think it's important because sometimes you think that the duty is just having the courage to go out. The adrenaline and, and being there is exciting and you get to be first line in the protest and you get to, you know, run away from tear gas. And, and, I, and I've seen that a lot in my country and, and in any, you know, conflict area, sometimes you see that. But the duty comes also from understanding the, the crisis or the context that you're trying to to photograph or to document. And second, learning what what are the best ways to photograph it in the, the most ethical way and the, the most respectful way to photograph an individual that's going through a very complicated situation. And I think that's the essence of the duty that journalists or photojournalists have in moments like this. And what do you wish people would see about what's happening in Venezuela? Anything that can connect with themselves. And in this case, we've talked about this a lot already, is the sense of loss. And we can all relate to that in some sense. What I want people to see with my work is essentially a mirror of something that has happened to them and they can feel something when they look at a picture. It might not be that you had to migrate, but some, some maybe you lost something that's important and you carry that with you. And that's not necessarily a bad thing if you understand how to work with that pain. And that's also why I work as a 
photographer because it allows me to work with the pain in a way that I don't judge it, in a way that I don't get too heavy with it, in a way that it allows me to just witness my own pain, my my neighbor's pain, the people who are crossing the border's pain, work with it and understand it and move on. And do you think this is something that the world sees and particularly international media editors because I know you work for a lot of international clients as well in terms of having a balance between work from people coming outside in and people who are from those communities. I think doors are opening for locals to tell their own stories. And I think it should stay that way. I mean, should we should keep giving opportunities to people um, who are living what they're photographing. But at the same time, how can we go even further? How can we ourselves in our territories find a way to not need a big media outlet to legitimize your work, to make you feel like it's valuable just because you've been published in an international media outlet? How can we in Latin America or in Africa or Middle East build institutions that can also legitimize our own work? that talk about the way that we see each other. How do we see each other? I think this is a really important question. And photographer Barry Christensen, who's based in Cape Town, South Africa, is asking himself similar questions. He worked as a computer programmer for years before recently switching to journalism and photography full-time. My father passed away at the beginning of 2019. Obviously, that just sort of led to, you know, thinking about what the fuck do I want to do with my life and, you know, what's, you know, what, yeah, what does it mean to live? What does it mean to be alive? What should I be doing? And um, I was also working five days a week at the time, full-time programming, and then on the weekends, photographing. And so I saved up some money, and then in May, May was my last month, and... I basically kind of gave myself the rest of 2019 to just sort of try and upskill where I could. Cape Town is a city with many layers to it. Tell me what it's like covering a city like this, so complex. Inequality is is crazy in South Africa, right? I think we're like one of the most unequal countries in the world and Cape Town is one of the most unequal cities in the world. And so you'll have, you know, obscenely rich people, but then very, very poor people. And oftentimes, you know, poor people would do informal work. And so because of the lockdown, you couldn't do that. Lots of people just lost their jobs. Lots of those people would live in shacks, and the shacks would be in the backyard of somebody who has a plot of land and a house. And But the thing is that, like, they still have a landlord, right? So if you, you have a backyard in someone else's home, it's a... Uh, it's still a rent-paying expense. So they go and put their shack up on vacant land and the city of Cape Town would call them land invaders and send in the anti-land invasion unit to go and dismantle their shacks. So you have like the mainstream media like calling them land invaders or calling it illegal occupations, basically just using the language that... Before you've read the story, you know what's happened, right? And and your knowledge is based on a prejudice. So the work that I do is, you know, trying to counter that and trying to find 
the stories behind things that happen. Like, why are these people occupying land? And often that's as simple as going and having a conversation, you know, and then trying to photograph them, not in the act of being arrested or the sensational thing of seeing the um, the shack get demolished. So I, I basically try to counter the narrative with my work in that I try and tell a fuller story. It's worth noting that Cape Town has had a housing crisis for over a decade. There has been a shortage of housing since apartheid. The government has scrambled to meet the demand of housing. Qualifying families and individuals are eligible to receive housing support from the government. But in practice, this amounts to you putting your name on a waiting list and often waiting years without certainty of eventually getting a home. And with Cape Town being an attractive city, gentrification is on the rise as property rentals keep going up. It can feel like a lose-lose situation. You see the tip of the iceberg, which is the the building of the quote-unquote illegal structure, but you don't see the, you know, the mass of the entire iceberg that's like floating beneath it which is like 10 years of asking for housing and not getting it so i I do feel the responsibility to say that you know because i'm i'm from here this is where i live um i've grown up i grew up in um in like quite a working class area former township colored township and so i'm I'm aware of the uh, the struggles that people face on a daily basis and so, it's, yeah, it's, it's important for me to tell those stories. Both my parents grew up in Bontevel, which is a colored township. And at some point, my mother was on the housing waiting list. We never got a house, you know, So and we were on there for like over 10 years. And so eventually I started working as a programmer and then we bought a house and stayed there for a while. So, like, this, like, struggle for land, the struggle for housing, which is... Because the people that are struggling are people who are part of like a mass scale disposition, you know, it's a it's a struggle to to be recognized as a legitimate citizen of the country and you know, of the city, you know. So it's it's a it's a struggle for identity. It's a struggle for belonging. And so for me, that sort of it's it's interesting, but it's also kind of personal. What are others' impressions of the city? And what is your reaction to these impressions? Well, it's definitely a tourist city. So I know, you know, that people come here because they want to see the beaches and the mountains. And so it is seen as a kind of ideal holiday destination. Our currency is quite weak. So if you come from anywhere in Europe, it's pretty cheap. Apart from driving past the townships when when they get here, like when they're leaving the airports, they can actually just, you know, stay in the Seapoint, Camps Bay area, southern suburbs, Simonstown, Cape Points, you know, and not really experience what most uh, most people in Cape Town experience. Well, it's obviously an incomplete perception, but I can also understand, like, if I'm going to go on a holiday, then I probably don't want to go to, you know, rough areas. So... For me, the perception is neither you nor they. I don't really care what people think about it. But what I do care about is the way that the city goes out of its way to make sure that people have those perceptions. Because that means moving people. That means maintaining a certain spatial policy that keeps rich people in one place and rich people in South Africa are mostly white and keeping poor people in other places and poor people in South Africa are mostly black. That's what I... 
what I have a problem with. It would be amazing if somebody gave me lots of money to do like really great public art projects where I could actually do the work of trying to counter those perceptions and in some way interject into, you know, like the visual landscape and yeah, work on some interventions. But as a journalist, I think it's pretty limited. You know, you sort of, you work on what you see and the people who want to read your stuff will and most people probably not. I mean, every place is really complex, right? Like, I don't think that there are any simple places. And you kind of, I think you kind of know that if you're asked to photograph something or do a story on something and you think, oh, this is going to be really great, easy and quick, and then it never is. <laughs> it's just always complicated. Um, and so it really helps to have an, like some kind of idea of what kind of complexities you're dealing with. And... And I think if you have that, then it puts you in a, in a better position to, you know, like tell a, a fuller story as opposed to what's on the surface. In terms of Cape Town, I, it's often quite annoying to see like people who haven't spent any time here photographing Cape Town because, I mean, the other thing about Cape Town is that it's like everything is so loud about it. You know, there's like extreme poverty there's extreme wealth there's extreme beauty there's extreme ugliness and but then there's like everything that's in between as well and often you know that that's that's the stories that need to be told i think telling stories about zimbabwe is really hard for me at least i think i'm very selective about the stories that i tell i think most because the weight is just it's a lot and I don't want to do a bad job of it. I'm also very careful about who I work with and what their intentions are because again, it's just, it, it means more. And sometimes I think for my sanity, I prefer to just cover stories in other regions in Africa. I'm not somebody who wants to be the expert on one place and I welcome other people's outlooks into reporting into it because sometimes I think they can do what I can't. Tasneem, what is it like for you being a Saudi photographer based in Saudi Arabia? Do you get tired of it? I feel very overprotective sometimes. I feel that I have this motherly instinct of I can share the truth of what's happening in Saudi, the good and the bad, but no one else who's an outsider can show the bad. And also if they share only but then I also get frustrated because I'm like, but, but you know, you're not seeing the truth. I'm tokenized as the Saudi photographer who gets to only photograph Saudi and nothing else and nowhere else where that's been at many times kind of um, a box that I can't ever really get out of. I would love to photograph elsewhere. I would love to be an amazing photographer that's hired because of my sensitive and provoking stories that are very intimate in Iraq or in India or in like anywhere close, but I, I haven't been and I don't think I will be for the near future because I'm always the Saudi photographer only. And it's hard because I think other people aren't looked at like that I always ask myself, like, why can that white man go everywhere? No, there's no yeah. place he can't go. <laughs> it, 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 there's no place where people are going to say, oh, well, that's not really, you know, he doesn't have experience or that's not really his beat or he's not from there. Does he even speak the language? I've never heard anyone say that. 
But I, <laughs> if I wanted to go to, you know, Venezuela and cover a story based on my experience, people might not necessarily make the immediate connection because they'd be like, but you're African. What are you doing in South America? Yeah, exactly. How many photographers do we know that are Western photographers who don't speak the language of the place that have been given that opportunity to grow and learn? I want that. I sometimes have that question of like, well, why am I frustrated with other photographers? Why don't I just go and explore and see where I am? And I think it's my own insecurity that limits me. Tasneem, can you tell me a little bit more about instances where you've questioned people's position in telling stories in other communities? I've done that so much where I feel that I'm, I have people avoid me now. The one that I, I still remember to this day and still feel a bit embarrassed about it was like in 2017, I was speaking at a National Geographic Summit. I had two months of preparation to talk about my own journey into photojournalism as a emerging photographer. And I decided that since I was speaking to all these editors and photojournalists in one room, I had to do something that will be it. It'll be the event where I was going to teach everyone a lesson. So I spoke about Saudi. I spoke about all the stereotypes that people usually associate with my, you know, with my home country. And, um, and then I just basically wanted everyone to reflect. And I said, I just went way off script. And I just said, leave Africans to tell their own stories, leave women to tell their own stories. I don't know. I don't know why I chose it, but it, it made me still to this day always wonder of like, I know I'm, sh I'm sure I must have sounded very arrogant and I, I must have hurt a lot of people's egos. And like, I don't know if that changed anything. Maybe I should have just focused on my own project and my own career and that's it. So yeah, after my, um, my own talk, one of the people that I met that was an inspiration to me, her work was always inspirational, was Andrea Bruce. And I also felt a little bit kind of embarrassed that I said that because she's an American photographer who's photographed in over 100 countries, a lot of them being the Middle East. I don't think I was personally attacking her, but I was a bit like, why can't you photograph Americans in the same way? Or how would you photograph Americans if you had that opportunity? And then I saw her a year or two later speak about the work that she's done in Iraq. And my father is second generation born and raised in Iraq. The way that she was sharing beautiful emotional stories, I, I remember having tears fall down my own face. And I just hugged her and I just said, thank you for sharing those stories. And I remember her hugging me back and she said, I get it though. I get what you said that year. I now understand it. And I see what you was trying to help me understand now that I'm back in the US and I'm photographing America and I'm photographing my own home country. And I love that we connected over that, that it wasn't me just kind of like, pointing the finger at everyone else. It, we both had something to resonate with in the end. I don't know how many people were kind and humble as Andrea to kind of reflect. Are you recording yet? Not yet, hold on. 
I have to make sure that this works because I haven't used this in like a million years. So in 2017, when I stood on the National Geographic, I guess, stage at the summit and I gave my very, very wise words, <laughs> now looking back at it, how do you feel about the things that I said? The world is not right and wrong. There's so much gray everywhere. Everything is a little more complicated than saying like, you can do this and you can't do that. As a Saudi, you, you shouldn't have to only cover Saudi. And that's, that's a really hard place to cover regardless. Um, uh, the freedoms that you have are, are pretty limited, um, especially as a journalist. So, and I would love to see your perspective all over the world. I think just now realizing that and and it's same with being a woman like i i i feel like it's a huge honor to cover women's issues and i i love it and i definitely bring a woman's perspective you know to to all of the work i do but i um but i i wouldn't ever want to just cover women's issues the thing that hurts sometimes when i hear people say that i as a you know white Americans shouldn't be covering other countries, I should only be covering my own, um, is that I, I really just believe in journalism. And as many journalists out there we can get going and, and reporting, then great. And I, I don't really think we should be eating each other up and saying who shouldn't do what, we should just be encouraging more people to do as much as possible. What is success to you as a you know, photojournalist? Success is getting people to pay attention to the world outside of themselves. Nobody lives in a bubble. And all of the lessons that I've learned, all the things that I've watched in war zones and revolutions, you know, then you start to see things happen in your own country, like in the United States. And you see, you know, the, the press being dismissed or threatened. You see, um, you know, the fight against protesters um, becoming militarized. You see uh, a, lot of, a lot of guns. And, and you know, just I know from experiences in other countries, how, how fast things can, can turn um, from peace to um, something like war. It scares me. And I, and I wish all these people had been paying attention. I stay awake up at night. I'm awake at night, like thinking, okay, what can I do to try to make things like to, as, if, as if I could really change everything? I'm, I'm not going to change, I know, anything, but I can try. Whether you're a journalist or you're not, that's, that's, I wish the way everyone thought, I wish everyone kind of stayed awake at night wondering what their role could be to make things a little bit better or peaceful. You know, I do realize that I am a white woman and we've had a lot of protests after the killing of George Floyd. And I really took a back seat in covering those protests because, um, because I think one of, especially in the United States, one of the most glaring problems that we have in photojournalism or documentary photography both is that we have very few black photographers and their voices are probably the most important in this country. Um, so uh, I really, their perspectives 
I really try to encourage as much as possible, you know, the careers and the perspectives that they had. So I really stepped back and decided not to cover most of those protests so that, you know, other other people who might even just be starting their profession can get the jobs that maybe I would normally get. I think that's one of the things that you have to do as a person of privilege. You have to check yourself constantly, you know, like, you know, look at the job that's in front of you and think, okay, is there someone better suited for this? You know, am I really the right person? And, and then you have to go about, if you are going to another country or another community, whether it's like in your own community or overseas, like you have to be humble and realize that you're, you have a certain level of ignorance and, 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 like really listen to people around you. And that's just, you know, the only way you can, can try to be successful at representing someone, which is a huge honor and also um, a privilege to be able to be um, in the shoes of taking someone's picture and, and trying to adequately portray their story. Do you think there's a magic wand that will fix this and then we can have a balanced narrative everywhere across the world. Like, how can we fix this? We need to all like work together and realize that we're, we're doing this for the same reason and, and not eat each other up. If we included more people, we would be better off. That's the magic wand. Initially, I thought that it was something that was just, you need to have the label of an insider of some sorts. If I was a woman, I need to photograph women. If I was a man, I could photograph, you know, um, the minority that I can be an insider to. And then working on this episode and speaking to Andrea Bruce, um, I had her kind of, I, I guess, counter back to my questions and say, but why? If you're a good photographer, that can evoke empathy, then why are you going to limit it and box yourself? So I, I don't know, I feel like I have to take back a little bit of my personal frustrations. Of, I don't know, I, I felt like I was always coming off as attacking of like, what gives you the right and the authority to photograph that community? And maybe I have to reel that a little bit in and kind of say, but maybe they will tell a better story than me or that person. And I'm still considering it. I don't know if I'm all the way there, but I'm trying to be a bit more aware and sensitive to how it comes off to others. I think my takeaway, reflecting and talking to everyone from this episode, is that it shouldn't be an either or. It doesn't have to be mutually exclusive. I think for the longest time, we've come from a history of outsiders documenting our communities, which is where the defensiveness comes from, which is where the push for having storytellers from their communities tell stories. And yes, sometimes I think that voice, that perspective is more important. But I think we can agree that no one thinks others should be kept out because I don't think there's value in that. I think what we're trying to push for is more inclusion from around 
and given the history of photography and storytelling coming from a very white male centric view, we're just asking for space for everybody else to come to the table and tell that story. Everyone has touched on this, but Andrea said it quite well is I think the key is also how we tell the stories, giving people dignity. And if you can manage to do that, whether in your backyard or in another community, that's the key to telling a compelling story. You can still be from a community and do damage. And I think I've talked about this with a lot of filmmakers who we're so used to consuming stuff that has been made in a very particular like male white gaze that you then go on to replicate the same thing just because this is also what you're exposed to and that's what you know and I've heard a lot of storytellers of color talk about trying to find their own voice and I've heard this from writers I've heard this from photographers I've heard this from painters because the earlier works that they've done have somewhat reflected what they consumed. And then one day they have this awakening in themselves and they truly find their voice. And it takes time to find that voice because you're so used to seeing this, this outside. And I think that's why it's so important about the who. Because if you have a more diverse group of people telling stories, then that gaze, that one monolithic gaze gets eliminated. Imagine you have a chance to get back on that National Geographic stage at the summit. What would you tell people? Knowing myself, I would maybe talk about my project a lot more, less, you know, telling people off, but then I can't help it. I will still do the same thing, just maybe a little bit more eloquently done and <laughs> not as like, please leave Africa. Maybe I'll say, please stay out of the Middle East. <laughs> <laughs> Switch up the region. What's changed from 2017 to now is that I've started realizing that there are amazing individuals who happen to be Western men, who happen to be, you know, basically white privileged men who have done some good and they've realized their privilege and they've started pushing and helping and, and encouraging local photographers in, in the African continent, in the Middle East, like in other regions that they were there and Seeing them, I'm like, well, I wish there's more of you. A warm thank you to Patience, Fabiola, Barry, and Andrea for taking time to speak with us on this episode. Please visit repicture.org to find links to their work and more about the everyday projects. By the way, we would love to hear from you. Have a clever idea for an episode? Know someone you think we should interview? Or maybe you even want to hire us? Email us at repicture at everydayprojects.org. We are a brand new podcast and we would appreciate and love your help. Tell your editor, your great-grandmother, your high school professor. Does anyone have a high school professor? I don't know. But all of you have exes, your ex-boyfriend, your ex-girlfriend, anyone, about how awesome Repicture is. And don't forget to like, share, and subscribe. 
I feel like my 15 year old daughter saying that. <laughs> okay. The Everyday Project is supported in part by Open Society Foundations Culture and Arts, Code for Africa, Africa No Filter, and Adobe. This episode of Repicture was produced by Tasneem Al Sultan, Eli Gardner, and me, Nyasha Kadandara, with the support of our team at the Everyday Projects Austin Merrill, Peter DeCampo, Rebecca Gibeon, Washeran Jaggi, John Edwin Mason, and Danielle Viasana, with music by Blue Dot Sessions and original theme by Hassan Hujeri. <laughs>